Welcome to the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church, we seek to love God, love others, and make a difference. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Let's pray before we start. Dear Lord, just thank you for another day. Oh, I just confess my need for you right now. Lord, I pray that your words would speak to us today. Lord, I pray that you do it only you can do. Speak in the way that you can speak. Move in the only way you can move. I pray that your words would penetrate our hearts and our souls this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. You are my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. He will grab his wife, his two daughters, and he will begin to explain to them what is going to happen over the next 12 hours. He will begin to explain to them, listen, we have to leave, that if we stay here tonight and wait till the morning, when the sun comes up, our city is going to be destroyed. So we actually have to leave, that if we stay, we'll die with our city. And he will look and he will explain, I've been a poor husband and a poor father. I picked a terrible place for us to live. And he'll see the reaction on his wife and his kids' faces. They're not really shocked. They know the problem in their city. They know the rampant sin in their city. They know the terrible sexual immorality that is happening in their city. Like they know that their city is a place where sex is anytime, anywhere with anybody, and no is not an option. They know what the welcome party is like. You see, if you were to visit their city and you were to visit family or friends and you would go into the house, the welcome party would show up at the house and they would knock on the door and the welcome party would demand that you come out so that they can welcome you in a proper way. And the way that they would welcome you is they get to do whatever they want to you, however they want to you, as much as they want to do. And the way it works in their city is more often than not, your family and friends that you're visiting, they have no choice but to give you to the welcome party, but they'd also join in with the welcome party. And so they're not completely shocked that God is going to rain down judgment on their city. And so they agree, we got to go. So husband will grab his hands, wife, she will grab one of her daughters, and her daughter will grab her sisters, and the four of them, like a chain, will start running out of the city. One command, don't look back. And they will run out of the city. And at a moment, mom, wife, will look back. The Hebrew word that's used for looking back is more this longing desire to go back to what she's leaving, to go back to an old life. Scripture tells us that she will turn into a pillar of salt. All because she didn't want to go to the new and she wanted to return to the old. Today we're going to look at a passage in Luke that is all about making things new. If you have your Bibles, open it up to Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Says after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, "Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners?" Jesus answered them, "It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick." I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. 
No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no, other, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Listen, there's a lot happening in this passage. And before we dive into it, you got to understand some background. First off, you got to understand who Levi is. Levi is also Matthew. Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. This is who they're talking about, the, the person who wrote Matthew, who wrote the gospel of Matthew. He is identified in both Mark and Luke as Levi, but this is the same person. Okay, you also have to understand uh, just some info about who Matthew is. One, we find him that he's a tax collector, which means he's one of the most hated, if not the most hated people, because there's a level in tax collectors, there's like a level of responsibility, and Matthew's responsibility was he was the lowest level of tax collector. We know that because he's in the tax booth, which means his job was to actually enforce the Roman law and enforce taxes on his own people, so he was considered a traitor. People hated him. Like, he was a terrible person in the eyes of Jewish people. Also, he lives in Capernaum. So he would have undoubtedly known about Jesus or heard about Jesus because Matthew 4.13 tells us that Jesus made his home in Capernaum, that he kind of made a home base in Capernaum. So Matthew for sure would have at least heard or known about Jesus. He may not have believed Jesus was God, but he definitely thought he was a good prophet, a, true, a, a good teacher. You also have to understand how hated a tax collector was. Like they are the symbolized, symbolized as the worst sinners of all considered traitors. Like a tax collector, they weren't allowed to um, uh, attend synagogue. They were considered unclean. They also weren't allowed to, do, to share a testimony in Jewish court. Why? Because they were tax collectors, which means they were liars and traitors. So there was no way you took their word for truth. They were seen as lost causes, as too far gone, and people to avoid. You have to understand the job of a tax collector, obviously, to collect taxes. But there was only a certain amount of money that they actually had to collect or a certain amount of tax that they had to collect. Any extra, the tax collector got to keep. So you could imagine that they began to tax everything. Let me explain. Types of taxes. There's a poll tax. There's an income tax, about 1% of your income. A land tax, 10% of all your grain, 20% of all wine and fruit. There's a transport of goods tax. A letters tax, you know, like if you wrote a letter and sent it to somebody. There's a tax on that. There's a produce tax. There's a using the road tax. There's a crossing the bridge tax. Like anything and everything that could be taxed was taxed. And then if you didn't pay the tax, the tax collectors hire, hired enforcers to physically force you to pay for taxes. This is who Matthew is, hated, despised, outcast, enforcing the law of taxes on the Jewish people. And yet here's where we find Jesus, calling Matthew to follow him. We find this unbelievable truth about who Jesus is. You see, Jesus is in the business of making things new. He finds Matthew in the tax booth, enforcing Roman law, collecting taxes for the Romans. And Jesus says, Follow me. That invitation to Matthew to follow him is an invitation for a new beginning for Matthew. Verse 28 tells us, man, he leaves everything behind. Like he has this banquet at his house, and then he leaves. He leaves behind his home. He leaves behind that job that says, hey, you've got to make this amount of money, and then anything extra, you just get to keep on top of it. So he leaves probably some pretty good wealth, leaves possibly family. He leaves everything behind 
to follow Jesus. And leaving everything behind means it's a new beginning that he is starting. And just as Jesus makes a, starts a new thing in Matthew, he does the same thing now. He just starts it with us. You see, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then he makes you new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. God's grace and mercy, it's wide enough to cover the worst of sinners, the worst of all people, including the tax collector who was considered the worst of all sinners in the Jewish people's eyes. This is, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you have begun to be transformed. You are being made new into a new creation. And like Matthew, we have to leave everything behind. We leave behind our old ideas, our values, our plans, our loves, our desires, the things that we wanted. Our old self is all, it dies. It's what we did last week in baptism. If you saw, if you were here, you celebrated baptisms with us. The picture of the gospel, when somebody goes under the water, it's a picture of their old self dying. They come up out of the water. It's a picture of the resurrection of Jesus walking in a newness of life. You see, if you have given your life to Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus, then you are not no longer your old self. Everything old in you dies. You are now called to walk in a new life. And that newness is created by God, meaning Christ creates new ideas, values, beliefs, loves, desires in us. It is not a blend of the old and the new. But there's a problem when it comes to the new. Here's the problem with the new. A lot of times we don't want the complete new thing. A lot of times we want our old life with just a little bit of the new. I think a lot of times we want our salvation to be like the golden ticket in Willy Wonka in the, the chocolate factory. Like it's just a promise that I get to heaven. It's not how it works. It's what the Pharisees got confused and why Jesus taught this parable in verses 33 and 39 when he talks about this new patch that doesn't fix an old garment. When he talks about new wineskin or new wine can't go into an old wineskin. Here's what Jesus is telling them. He says, our instinct is to patch Jesus onto our old practices and beliefs. Let me explain this parable. If you have a garment that has a hole in it, an old garment that has a hole in it, if you take a new garment and you cut a hole out of it, you have now ruined that new garment because you have taken a hole out of it, right? You've put a hole in there. If you take that patch and you put it on an old garment, it won't match because the old one is faded and whatever, and, you know, like not the same color. But two, when you go to wash it, that new patch, it's the first time it's being washed. What happens when you wash something for the first time? Some of y'all don't do laundry. It shrinks. It shrinks. So that new patch will shrink. The old garment does it. It creates a worse tear and a bigger hole as the new garment will rip from that old garment. So now you have two ruined garments. Let me explain wineskins to you. Wineskin is made out of animal hide in their day and time. You know, you butcher an animal, kill an animal, you take the animal's skin and whatever size wine skin or, or amount of wine you needed was how you would create it. You'd sew it up, create your wine skin. You would take new wine, pour it into new wine skin. As that wine fermented and the gases and all that expanded, the new wine skin would expand with it, okay, holding it all together. If you take an old wine skin that has already been expanded to its max and you pour new wine as, as that wine ferments and the gases expand, that wine skin can no longer expand, which means it starts to burst at the seams. Your wine pours out onto the floor. It is ruined and your wine skin is ruined. Here's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees. He's saying the gospel cannot be patched into Judaism. And to us today, the gospel cannot be patched into 
any other system. The gospel cannot be patched into my old way of thinking. The gospel cannot be patched into my old life. The gospel cannot be patched to my old worldview. Like it changes everything. It's not a patch that I put on to my old way of life. It's what we would call syncretism. Syncretism is this idea that you uh, combine two or three or more religions or cultures and you make it into something new and you're taking a little bit of everything, patching it together and trying to make it work together. We see it in the Old Testament. The Israelites try to synchronize or have syncretism with the Canaanite religion. They try to blend the two. Did the same thing the Israelites and the Egyptian religion. We see it in history, Greek Gnosticism, Judaism, Christianity, Greek religious philosophy, all brought in as one religion in Greek Gnosticism. Manichaeism, Christianity, Zoroastrianism, and Buddhism all combined to make Manichaeism. Today we see it in theologies like the liberation theology. The, liber the liberation theology teaches this, that Jesus Christ, di Christ died on the cross only to set free those who are physically oppressed and poor, those who are in slavery, which is true. He did. But it's not the only people. He also died for those who are spiritually impoverished, spiritually poor, spiritually enslaved. But they teach only the physical. We also see it in prosperity theology, that God's greatest desire for you is to have a lot of monetary wealth and a lot of material possessions in this life. That that is Jesus. That's why he died on the cross, so you would be rich and wealthy. I think Jesus cares about our economic status and, and where we are. I don't think that's the reason he died on the cross, was so we would have riches in this life. Matter of fact, Jesus seems to say the exact opposite. Don't store up treasures here on earth, store up treasures in heaven. He seems to say the complete opposite when he flips the whole success paradigm on it, uh, over on itself and says the greatest of you will serve. That the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who will serve. He seems to show that example when he washes the, the feet of the disciples. Like it seems like over and over and over again, Jesus is saying, listen, it's not about your material wealth in here in this life. You see, we try to patch Jesus into our way of thinking. We try to patch him into our worldview, but we can't. You see, Jesus doesn't fit my worldview. He doesn't fit my beliefs. He doesn't fit my way of thinking in my old life. He changes it and makes it new. You see, the gospel isn't about making Jesus fit my life. It's about my old self dying and having a new life in Jesus. The gospel is not a patch that I put on to keep my old way of life. The gospel of Jesus Christ completely changes us. The Pharisees, they ask this question about fasting, and they go back to rituals and legalism. And Jesus' answer to them is the same to us, that he didn't come to be a patch to the system. He came to replace the system, to be a new garment, and that new garment is a good news of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, a lot of times I think we try to patch Jesus on to our life. Like, you ever seen people, especially like teenagers, they have those water bottles, and they've got like a million stickers on them. You, can't, you don't even know what sticker's what. I think we do that with Jesus. Let me explain. I'll take that patch of Jesus, that one that says I get salvation. I'll take that patch. I'll take the patch that tells me uh, to love people, but I want the one that says I get to love people the way I want to love them. I'll take that patch about Jesus when it comes to my sexuality as long as I get to determine what's on that patch, which means I get to determine who I have sex with, how I do sexuality and when and where and all that stuff. I'll take the patch when it comes to finances, as long as that finances patch means I get a lot of money. As long as it means I'm financially blessed. You see, I think there's often times I like to take patches of Jesus. And he makes it very clear. 
His death, his burial, his resurrection wasn't to be a patch to the old system. It was to give me a new life. You see, as Jesus makes us new, I see things differently. So Romans 12, 2 is all about when Paul writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, as Jesus makes me new, my mind is transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? As I study and I read Scripture, as I meditate on God's Word, as I worship Him, as I hear the teaching of God's Word, my mind starts to be transformed by the, renew- by the power of the Holy Spirit, renewing my mind, meaning I'm not conformed to the things of this world, meaning my old self dies, the old way I used to think dies, and I now have a new life and a new perspective on how I look at things. For instance, I'll see people differently. We find Jesus at this banquet at Matthew's house, sitting with tax collectors and sinners. The idea that Jesus would save a tax collector is absolutely absurd to the religious elite, absurd to the Pharisees. Not only is it crazy that he would save him, it's crazy that he would make him a disciple. There's no way. It's crazy that Jesus would even go to his house and eat a meal with them. And yet we find Jesus sitting here with tax collectors and sinners. And my bet is those sinners were the enforcers, other tax collectors, thieves, prostitutes, drunks. My bet is it's those kinds of people. Why? Because they were also outcasts. And since Matthew was an outcast, he would only hang out with other outcasts, which means those are the people Jesus is hanging out with at Matthew's house. Those are the people that Jesus has his feet kicked up with a plate of food on his lap eating with. And the Pharisees and religious elite were upset about it. Jesus saw those people differently. Listen, the Pharisees and religious leaders, they saw those people as too far gone. Jesus sees them as easy to save as any of us. They saw them as people to be despised and judged. Jesus sees them as people to be loved to the point of giving his life to lavish them with grace. They saw them as people to be avoided. Jesus saw them as people to be pursued. They saw them as trash, and Jesus saw them as treasure. Here's the thing is, seeing people differently, that one's extremely difficult. Why? Because I have a history maybe with certain people. Why? Because I still define love the way the world defines love. Let me explain. Um, I don't want to have to love people that don't think like me, act like me, look like me, talk like me, speak like me, uh, grow up like me, do the same things that I do. I don't want to love people that don't have the same morals, beliefs, religious beliefs, go to the same church, have the same politics. You see, like, I don't want to have to love people like that because they're also different than me. And the world actually defines love as agreement. Like, you love me if you agree with me. That's how love works. And then the world says, if people don't agree with you, they don't love you. And if they don't love you, you don't have to love them back. Yet, if you are a Christian, a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus, then we are called to imitate Jesus, which means I'm supposed to love people the way Jesus loves people, which means I go back to Romans and I read that while we were his enemies, while I was a sinner, Jesus went to the cross for me. It's the ultimate display of love for your enemy, that you would die for an enemy Or I look at Jesus' words and he says, how will people know that I am real? It's by the way that my people love one another. Like, yeah, you can get up and talk about Jesus. I can get up and tell people about Jesus. But the way non-Christians will know that Jesus is real is by the way that I actually love people. 
Now whether I get up on stage and talk about it, which means I now have to see people differently. Jesus says the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, which means I'm not called to be served, but I'm called to serve. I'm going to imitate Jesus. And there is no caveat in there about what people I get to serve. I'm happy to serve my family. I am happy to serve my wife. Not always happy to serve the people that don't look like me, think like me, act like me, speak like me, have a different political belief, sexual ethic, religious belief. Oh, I'm supposed to serve them. Hmm. You see, as Jesus makes me new, I see people differently. I also see my circumstances differently. Religious leaders, they ask this question about fasting, and they're very confused about fasting because fasting to them is all around sadness and grief. And Jesus tells them, there's nothing to be sad about. I am here. He does say that there's a time for fasting, and there's two different opinions or beliefs on what time frame Jesus is talking about. The debate is over one time frame being the three days between his death and his resurrection, the other time frame being after his ascension. Right After he's resurrected, he spends like 40 days here on earth, and then he ascends into heaven. And there's a debate between which time period is he talking about for this fasting. The early Christians, evidence shows us, early church evidence shows us that it was the three days between his death and resurrection, that it wasn't the ascension. Why? Because Jesus himself said it's good for him to go to heaven, to sit at the right-hand throne of the Father. Why? So that the Holy Spirit could come and live inside of us. That it's better for us to not have physical Jesus there, but the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so they believed that it was the death, the three days between the death and the resurrection. And the Christian, early Christian attitude toward fasting was not one of sadness and grief. It was actually what we see, one of joy and gratitude. Why? They were joyful and gracious because he resurrected, because they had a new life in Jesus. And then they had hope in his one day second coming and his return. You see, the early Christians had a different perspective on their circumstances. They saw their circumstances differently. For Christians today, we should see our circumstances differently. We are no longer captivated by the negative things in our life. And there are negative things. There's sorrow, there's heartache, there's pain, there's grief. There's things physically, emotionally, spiritually done to us, for sure. But it doesn't mean we're captivated by those things. You see, I'm no longer captivated by that. Why? Because in light of eternity, that sting from those things is a little lighter. The sting is less in light of eternity because for the believer, it's temporary sorrow. For the believer, it's temporary pain. It's temporary grief. It's temporary heartache. Even if my heartache lasts the entire lifespan of my time here on earth, Scripture tells me that my life is like a vapor. that It's gone. We know that life goes quickly. So in light of eternity, it is very temporary, the pain or the grief that I feel in this life. If I've put my faith in Jesus, then I, know, I believe one day he will return. And then I believe that on that day, what Revelation 21.4 says, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You see, my, temp, my, my circumstances are temporary because my trust is in the one who is already won. My trust is in the one who is already victorious. So no matter what I go through in this life, no matter what heartache, no matter what pain, no matter what sadness, no matter what grief, no matter what is done to me, this is the worst it gets for me. I put my faith in the one who's already won, who's already defeated sin, grave, and death, which means 
this side of heaven is the worst it'll ever get for all of eternity for me. So I have hope. I can have joy. I can have gratitude in the midst of all the terrible things and all the hard things. Why? Because my hope is in the one who's already won. My hope is in him who is already victorious. I see my circumstances differently. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is already victorious. Like we sang that song, the battle belongs to him. We sing songs like, Lord, you are victorious, and Jesus, are you, you are victorious. We, if you have put your faith in Jesus, we share in that victory. So we sing songs like that, but we walk out not in victory. We walk out feeling the weight of the world. We walk out feeling like I'm losing, like I can't find a win. I walk out of here so many times feeling like I can't take anymore. You feel defeated. And here's the thing. Life will make you feel that way. Just because you're a Christian does not mean life is easy. It's hard and it's painful. But I get to walk in victory. Why? Because I have put my faith in the Lord who is victorious. I put my faith in the one who already won the battle for me. When I feel defeated, when I feel beat down, when I feel like I can't take anymore, when I feel like mentally I'm going to lose it, there's a little glimmer of hope. It's in the one who says, I defeated sin in the grave for you. Walk in victory. It doesn't make it easy, but I can have joy and have gratitude and have hope in the midst of that. You see, when Jesus makes us new, I will see God and my spiritual disciplines differently. All these religious leaders and their thing of fasting, they thought it was all about rules and rituals and showing off. Verse 34, it says, Jesus answers them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them in those days, they will fast. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying he is the bridegroom. And for every religious leader and every Pharisee in that day and that time who heard Jesus say that he was the bridegroom, they would immediately went back to Old Testament. They would have went back to Isaiah 62, to Jeremiah uh, 2. Because here's what happens. In the Old Testament, Israel is constantly called the bride of the Lord. But the bridegroom's not really identified. Okay. But they would have went back to these passages, and they would have went back to Hosea 2. It says, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land, so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. We see this, this theme in the Old Testament as Israel be, being called the bride of the Lord. In the New Testament, Revelation 19 and 21 and in 22, we see that the church is called the bride of Christ. So when Jesus says he is the bridegroom, here's what he is saying. I am God. I am the one that you will be betrothed to. I am God. Here's how Tim Keller explains it. I am the bridegroom. What this means is I am faithful to you. 
It means I commit myself to you, and I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. When he says, I am the bridegroom, he is saying, my love for you has no limits. My love for you has no conditions. My love for you will never go out. My love for you will never go cold. My love for you is permanent. Jesus saying that he is the bridegroom. He is defining the relationship he desires to have with each one of us. He says, my, my desire is that our relationship would look like the perfect and ideal marriage. It would be personal. It would be intimate, and it would be extremely life-giving. Here's what Jesus is saying. Don't look at God, faith, spiritual disciplines the same way you used to. It's not about rules and rituals. Even when you fast, don't do it to show off. Don't do it to, to, to make yourself be more spiritual than somebody else. As a matter of fact, if you look at the command of fasting, it happens one time in Scripture. It's in the Old Testament. The command to fast goes to the Jewish people on the Day of Atonement is the only day they're supposed to fast. The Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, and they would do it very publicly. They would do this grieving and this mourning in front of the people in the town square, in the town market, so everybody knew that they were fasting, that they were holier than everybody else. Jesus never commands you to fast. It is not a command in the New Testament. So where does fasting come from? Jesus teaches on fasting, not as a command, but he teaches people how to fast. He assumes his disciples would fast. In the early church, they fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays. Wednesday was the day that Jesus is betrayed. Friday is the day that Jesus dies. They don't fast on the Sabbath, or, and don't fast on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was his resurrection. You, there's nothing to be sad or grieve about, about the resurrection. The Sabbath was a day of feasting, not fasting. But Jesus does teach about, about fasting, which, he is, which means he assumes that his followers would fast. And I do believe, I believe fasting is a, is a good spiritual discipline. But I believe there's a correct way to do it. It's not about a rule that I have to do it. I don't do it to show off. I don't do it to be better than anybody else. I don't do it out of obligation. Here's why I think uh, the best idea for fasting is. It's a healthy expression of your hunger to experience God. Jesus saying, I am the bridegroom. He's saying, I have a desire to have a, what would be like a perfect marriage, a deeper, more intimate, very personal, life-giving relationship with us. So when I fast, I am just saying, God, I desire to know you deeper, to know you more intimately. As a matter of fact, I fast to offer myself, my body, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you as a sign of worship. Here's what I mean by you will see God differently. At the moment of salvation, an individual recognizes, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, I can't do anything to, to earn salvation, I'm in need of a Savior, I believe in the birth, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and that he paid for my sins. After that, I don't really know how this happens after. I don't really know how this Christian walk happened. I don't really know what to expect, right? Here's what you start to see. Is typically, the way I used to think about God or what I thought about God starts to change. I realize that Jesus desires a deep and intimate personal relationship with me. And in that, I start to realize I desire a deeper, more intimate and personal relationship with him. I desire to experience his love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness in a deeper, more personal way. Here's what I mean by our, uh, our spiritual disciplines, seeing our spiritual disciplines differently. 
Spiritual disciplines aren't something I have to do. They're something I get to do. Let me explain. I get to pray. I get to pray, which is I get to have a conversation with the God of the universe who spoke and the world was created. I get to pray to the God who and put his breath in my lungs. You mean I get to have a conversation? Like you are a God who not just desires to speak to me, but you are the God who desires to hear from me? Oh, I get to pray. I get to worship. I'm a terrible singer, but for some reason, when I sing, it sounds like music to the ears of God. I get to worship you. I get to serve God. I get to serve his church. I get to serve people outside of his church in our city, our country, in our world. You mean I get to do these things? I get to give to generously to the kingdom of God. Not that I have to give. I don't have to tithe. Why? Because God doesn't need my money. He allows me to be a partner with him in the expansion of his kingdom. You mean I get to watch lives be changed. You mean I get to get to be a part of people coming to know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, eternally saved from sin and hell. You mean I get to be a part of marriages restored, families restored. You mean I get to be a part of this stuff. I get to experience the Sabbath. I get to practice the Sabbath. The Sabbath, a day commanded by God to rest from my work so I can spend time with him. You mean you are a God who loves me so much and you recognize that in my culture, in the time that I live right now, that there is a, a pursuit to work really hard and make as much money as you can, work as much as you can, so I can have everything in this world that this life has to offer. And you would put in a command to take a day of rest so that I can spend time with you. You mean you are a God who desires that? You mean you are a God who desires for me to have time of solitude, which is one-on-one -on -one time with God, not because it's commanded and I have to, because you desire to do it with me. It's not an I have to. It's an I get to. It starts to change the way I see God and my spiritual disciplines when I change one word from I have to to I get to. Here's how John Mark Comer says it. Christ-likeness is possible, but it is not normal. In fact, the gravity or inertia of life will likely take you in the opposite direction. To put it another way, there are no accidental saints. Nobody wakes up one morning around the age of 50 and thinks, wow, would you look at that? I became a saint. Weird. Or, hmm, it seems like I have been living the Sermon on the Mount. I'm increasingly free of all worry, all care, judgmentalism, lust, and anger. Money no longer has a hold on my heart. I am no longer run by fear and the need to look good to other people. I feel free. I've been pervaded by love, even love for my enemies. What a nice coincidence. He says, formation will happen to you with zero conscious decision on your part. But formation into a person of love in Christ will not. That you must choose and keep choosing day after day. It will require intentionality. Here's what he's saying. Everything in our world is discipling you to something. Formation towards those things takes zero conscious effort. It is on the things that you scroll on on social media or on the internet. It's from commercials and the shows and the movies and everything else that we watch. We are constantly inundated with things that are trying to disciple and form us into something. It's never towards Jesus. That takes conscious effort. I think it starts with changing I have to to I get to. Listen, if you are a non-believer, you don't believe in Jesus, you're here today, whether online or in person, you may be thinking, this is exactly why I don't believe in Jesus. Because the Christians I know, or the, the people that claim to believe in Jesus, they don't look at people any differently than I do. They don't look at their circumstances 
any differently than I do. They don't see God or spiritual disciplines any differently than I do. So why would I put my faith into Jesus that they look exactly the same as me? Why would he be real? Let me explain sanctification. Sanctification is a process. At the moment you, uh, an individual gives their life to Jesus, they start the sanctification process. Here's what that means. is ideally, hopefully, we are becoming more and more like Jesus. Here's what that also means. We're not perfect, and we're not going to get it right all the time. So, hopefully, we are getting better at the way we see people, see my own circumstances, and the way I see God and spiritual disciplines. I'm not going to be perfect, not going to get it right all the time. Here's my encouragement to you. Get to know some Christians, some believers, and simply ask them, how long have you been Christian? How did you used to see people? How do you see them now? What's changed in your life? Here's the thing. They don't have to evangelize you. You do not have to believe or agree with what they believe and agree or, or what they believe in for you guys to be friends. You don't have to agree to love one another. You can love without agreeing. That's okay. Our world will tell you different. I want to encourage you. Maybe get to know some. See if he's real. See if their life has changed. For the believer, here's my encouragement for you. Start with prayer. Ask God to convict you. Maybe where you don't see people differently, circumstances in your life differently, or where you don't see uh, God differently or spiritual disciplines differently. The reality is, is we all have blind spots. If you're like me, I don't like my blind spots to be pointed out by any other human being. Goes a little better for me when God points them out. So start with prayer. God, show me my blind spots. Lot's wife was told one thing. Don't look back. And her heart longed and desired for the city and the life that she left behind. And she turned and looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. Found in Genesis 19, 26. I think it breaks God's heart when those of us that have put our faith in Jesus want to put Jesus on like a patch. We still look back and desire for our old life when it's a God that's going, listen, I sent my son to die on a cross for you. That's so you could keep the old. So you have new life, both now and for eternity. My hope, my prayers, as you walk out of here, you walk out in victory you walk out in freedom, you walk out in that newness of life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the sacrifice of your son, for the new life that I have in you. Lord, I pray for all of us, pray for me, that you would show me, convict me of the areas that are not like you. Lord, that you would point out my blind spots. Lord, and then you'd give me the courage to work through, to change those, so I can become more like you. I pray that you get all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this, and you can also find more information at lifechurchreno.com. Blessings to you.